So tonight, continuing on in the series on the Brahma-viharas, last week I was speaking about compassion, and I actually have one little piece that I want to share before I move on to mudita. And this was actually a teaching that I felt like I received from you as I sat with you in the last week. And I came up with uh, a new definition of compassion, and it's tears of understanding. Somehow, in sitting with you, listening, and it happened to be a week where there seemed to be a number of tears shed, but many, many times they were tears that sprung from understanding. And this is compassion, when we can touch into the depths of, under, uh, of suffering and there be an understanding that can hold it. And today, again, as I was preparing my talk, I looked to see uh, where my own mind was. And, you know, last week I had said, before I started talking about compassion, that I thought Murita would have been a more appropriate talk. And tonight, <laughs> I felt like <laughs> compassion would have been a more appropriate talk. Um, and, well, I blew that one, because <laughs> I did, I did uh, compassion last week. But it also led to a very interesting exploration, because there I was, sitting, feeling more connected to compassion and needing to switch to mudita. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar, mudita is sympathetic or appreciative joy, where we can find delight, happiness, the ability to rejoice in the happiness or good fortune of another. And so, you know, there I was feeling in touch with compassion, meaning in touch with the suffering in the world. And then the thought to, ugh, mudita, you know, it's like somewhere up in the clouds. You know, how can I possibly make that stretch? But in doing so, I just saw something of how these uh, Brahma-viharas complement each other. And, you know, in making that stretch to move from compassion to mudita, I saw how compassion just gives depth to mudita. You know, because when we think of mudita, we can think of it, you know, we could almost think of it in a very frivolous way. You know, oh, get happy with someone else, you know, and not have a lot of depth. But when, you know, we've touched into suffering in a really deep way, and then can still find that capacity to find joy in the world, to find happiness, to be able to be happy for somebody else. It's much fuller. It's much richer. And I also really felt how, um, in doing so, it brought a brightness, a lightness to the mind. Know that it uh, made it less dense. It opened it up in another way, which keeps one from being overwhelmed by the suffering.
the Buddha, the Buddha Rupas that we see around, they really um, somehow give a visual image of both the compassion, wisdom, and this quality of mudita. We see the Buddha sitting in a posture of great nobility, upright. And, you know, if we know of the Buddha's teachings, we know that he has touched into the depths of suffering. And yet on his face is often depicted this very faint smile. And it's often called uh, the smile of mudita. It's that, that capacity to know joy amidst the suffering of the world. So tonight, mudita. Mudita, the joy that multiplies. It's such a beautiful quality of mind. Where in the cultivation of it, we're turning our minds towards the natural buoyancy of the mind, the lightness of the mind, and the capacity to gladden the mind. And we do so by focusing on the happiness, joy, good fortune, uh, prosperous conditions that another being may be experiencing in their life. It's really an essential quality when we live in a world that is filled with so much pain and suffering that you know, there's always the possibility of really getting broken by the immensity of suffering. But with this uh, Brahma-vihara, mudita, we really learn about the resilience of the heart, the capacity of the heart to keep turning towards goodness and actually rejoicing in that goodness. Mudita brings a delight into the mind that kindles interest, care, attentiveness, and a tenderness, a softening of the heart. We find that mudita, too, breaks down the barriers of separation, that when someone else is feeling joyful, happy, we can share in that happiness. It doesn't simply belong to them, other. It can be shared. In the Tibetan teachings, as an illustration of the joy uh, that can be experienced, there's an example given that is of a mother camel. And it's said that a mother camel is, in the animal world, the most affectionate mother. And if a mother loses her calf, it's said that the sorrow that she experiences is very intense. And when she is united with that calf, the joy 
that she experiences knows no bounds. And this is said to be the kind of sympathetic joy that we should encourage. A joy that is boundless, without limit. The root meaning of mudita is to be pleased in mind or a sense of gladness. The root of mudu means a tender heart. So a sense of gladness that comes from a tender heart. I'd like to share a teaching that Nyanaponikatera gives about mudita and this quality of joy and how important it is. He says, Noble and sublime joy is a helper on the path to the extinction of suffering. Not one who is depressed by grief, but one possessed of joy finds that serene calmness leading to a contemplative state of mind. And only a mind serene and collected is able to gain the liberating insight. So joy being an essential component on the path of awakening, needing to be able to gladden, lighten the mind. This in turn helps the mind to become more serene, concentrated, calm, which leads to liberating insight. Mudita is said to be the hardest of all of the Brahma-viharas to cultivate. It's also said to be the most neglected. I discovered this was quite true one time when I was doing some research on the Brahma-viharas, and I was uh, going to different websites and exploring. And it turned out that a number of times I would go to a website and it would have a section for mudita that was blank. (laughs) There was no links to it. (laughs) I think one of the reasons why it might be the most neglected is because it's one of the, it is the most challenging for many people. And we tend to avoid that which is challenging. And I think there's some pretty good reasons why it can be challenging, of which I will explore more of. Part of it is that we have deeply habituated patterns of jealousy, envy, uh, comparing mind, that are the opposite of mudita. And they make it very difficult to delight in the good fortune of another. Another aspect of it can be just the difficulty we may have in opening to joy. Happiness. And it seems remarkable in some way that there is such a difficulty to do this. Because happiness plays such a central role in our lives. 
so much of what we do in life is in the pursuit of happiness, wanting happiness. And yes, we often pursue this happiness in very misguided ways, seeking it in ways that will never give us a deep, lasting happiness. Uh, seeking happiness through sense pleasure, through getting things in our life, through having the right relationships in life, through really trying to create circumstances in our life that will help us to be happy. And, you know, this is all based upon the fleeting conditions of life. And as things change, we often feel uh, betrayed, disappointed, frustrated. And, you know, it can lead us into a state of depression because we start to feel that, you know, nothing is worthwhile. Life isn't worth living because everything is so fleeting and there isn't any lasting happiness. And yet, this urge that we feel for happiness is really a wholesome urge that we experience in our life. It just needs to be guided by wisdom. I'd like to share a, a little bit from a, a sutta about a monk that, named, uh, that lived in the time of the Buddha named Samidhi. And Samidhi was said to be very diligently practicing one day and then was visited by a celestial being. And he was asked why he was giving up the happiness of sense pleasure for a vague promise of happiness in the future. He replied saying that he was giving up the promise of happiness in the future so that he could dwell fully in the present moment. When we dwell fully in the present moment, we can find a happiness, a joy that has great simplicity to it, that is the mind that is content with just what is. We find at these times we're not living, longing for something in the future. We're not regretting something that's happened in the past, but we're dwelling in the present moment. This in itself has a lightness to it, has this quality of joy within it. Mahagosananda, the Cambodian monk that I quoted last week or spoke about, um, he, he once said, if we cannot be happy in spite of our difficulties, what good is our spiritual practice? In our practice, we often think that if we could get rid of certain aspects of life that we struggle with, if we could get rid of this thinking mind, if we could get rid of our knee pain, our back pain, if we could get rid of our fellow neighbor who's making a lot of noise, you know, then we would be happy. But he's saying, in spite of 
all of the challenges, all of the difficulties that we face, we can be happy. Our practice is a way of watering the seeds of happiness and refining uh, our understanding of the causes of happiness. When we're lost in delusion, we're not able to see what brings about this joy, this lightness of heart. But joy is not always so easy to get in touch with. Joseph mentioned this in his last talk, how you know, we can become very uh, familiar with, aware of our pain and our suffering, but may completely skip over moments of simple joy. I remember what a surprise this was in my own practice when I discovered this tendency to actually not just skip over joy, but to actually have some fear of joy. That, you know, there could be uh, the fear of further disappointment in life, and so it becomes easier to push it away, to hold it at arm's length, than to really let one's heart be touched and open fully to that joy, even though it may be fleeting. But we find that there is a joy when we can open to both the pleasure and the pain of life because our hearts are open and available. We can allow ourselves to be touched without continually guarding of our hearts. We also find uh, when we really look at this relationship we might have with joy that there can also be fear of attachment. You know, in these teachings, we so often hear about attachment as being the cause of suffering. And so when attachment arises, we think we're bad, we're terrible. Uh, We take it personally. And so when joy comes along, rather than getting attached to it, it's better if we just don't even look at it. And this isn't the Buddhist teachings at all. We need to be able to open to this joy. We can also find that there are underlying attitudes towards happiness and joy that may keep us from experiencing it fully where we think that happiness and joy are simply superficial, frivolous. And this can at times be reinforced when we hear teachings on the Four Noble Truths. That's where the truth is. 
It's not about joy. It's not about happiness. And we forget that the Buddha, the whole direction of the Buddha's teachings was to take us to supreme happiness, to know a happiness that is not dependent upon conditions being a certain way. So what are some of the ways that we can help support an opening to joy? One is to really honor our desire to be happy, our desire to experience joy in our lives, to know that this uh, desire to be happy is a really wholesome urge. One of the conflicts that happens in our mind is because we hear of desire being uh, the cause of so much suffering and then hear desire to be happy and think of wanting or grasping. But in Pali, there is a number of words that get translated into desire and they don't all point towards the uh, unwholesome form of desire. This desire to be happy is really a wholesome urge and it is also a necessary factor for awakening to occur. We need to know that it's not wrong to want to be happy. We also need to know that being happy doesn't marginalize the pain and suffering in the world. We live in very opulent conditions and it can be uh, you know, challenging at times to, we might think that it's really um, frivolous, it's really, really almost... Uh, rude or um, at odds with the world when we know so many people are suffering to be happy. And yet, when we don't open to the good fortune in our own lives, we're not utilizing the conditions that we've been born into. That right now, we have really rare conditions in our life. You know, conditions to be able to hear the Dhamma, to practice, to be in a beautiful center. And if we think that we're negating the suffering in the world by opening to these conditions, we're shutting ourselves off in a certain way. So it's really important to know that it's not a way of negating the pain and the suffering. it's important that we notice what brings us joy in our lives, what brings us happiness. And the experience of that joy when it's really a moment of the heart being touched. It could be something as simple as walking outside when the sun is setting. And if you've seen the sunsets around here, there's often a golden light streaming through the trees. It's very beautiful. 
And in the moment of seeing that setting sun, it might be a moment where the heart just is touched, opens, responds. It isn't about getting lost in the experience of that setting sun, but the joy comes from just being touched for a moment by life. It might be when we see an act of kindness from another. This might touch our hearts. There might be joy. It might be a moment of seeing a beautiful smile on the face of a loved one. It could be a moment of sitting here on retreat and noticing that someone sitting near to you has been practicing very diligently and we become touched by their practice. When I talked about metta practice, I said that the proximate cause was seeing the goodness. Seeing the goodness in ourselves, in others. And when we can see the goodness, joy naturally arises. So this can be a way of getting in touch with joy. Training ourselves to look for goodness because so often we don't. We look at what's wrong. But in seeing the goodness, there comes this joy. We can also invite joy into our lives through reflecting on wholesome deeds that we have done. This is a very good practice to do at the end of a day, to take the time, excuse me, to look back over the course of the day and to see what it is that we have done that has been kind, generous, caring, wholesome. And it can have the effect of lightening the heart. So noticing where in our lives we experience joy and also giving permission to experience that joy, to allow it, and to even encourage joy into our lives. In doing so, we also work with the overcoming of the fear of clinging. we find that we learn that we have the capacity to open, to be available to that which is joyful, that which is beautiful, can be celebrated, rejoiced in, and to let it go. We allow ourselves to be touched moment by moment in life. This is from William Blake. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies 
lives in eternity's sunrise. We learn to kiss the joy as it flies. We can also open to joy uh, through the appreciation of the many blessings that we experience in life. Blessing, what a blessing it is to be here, to have the opportunity to practice, uh, to live in a time when the teachings can be heard, uh, to have been born, to receive this gift of life. We're also living on a planet that can sustain life, that there's earth under our feet, air that we breathe, water that we drink, food that nourishes us. There's so many blessings in life. We can uh, feel this appreciation for the fact that we have other beings around us that stay steady at times when we might begin to feel like our own light flickers and dims, that the, the other beings help to support us. We can have gratitude for their steadiness. I also heard another definition of gratitude that I I, uh, quite liked, and it said we can have gratitude for what we don't have that we don't want. So that's the one to remember when things are really hard, having gratitude for what we don't have that we don't want. (laughs) When we have gratitude in our lives, it helps us to gain confidence in life, that, you know, there is support in our lives, that life is not against us. And this, too, helps to gladden the heart. I know at a time in my own life, the practice of gratitude became a lifeline for me, It was at a time when I was very sick. And it was, in doing this practice, it was a way of letting a ray of sunshine into a very dark world. Just for a moment or moments to remember what I could be grateful for. Sometimes I couldn't even formulate, I couldn't think about what I could be grateful for. And at those times, I could simply focus on a beautiful plant, a flower, or I lived by the ocean. I could just simply look at the beauty of the ocean. And that helped to open my heart. Generosity is another way of gladdening the heart. It's a moment where we let go of desire, grasping. We let go of trying to get something for ourselves and offer freely. We relinquish. 
we find that generosity helps to erode miserliness. When we work with generosity, we let go, or we're we're actually working with the fear of not having enough, a fear that so often drives us in our life. But we are instead living from that place of abundance, where what we have is enough, is plentiful, and we can actually share what we have. The cultivation of wisdom, or seeing things clearly, this can be the greatest joy of all, where we can rejoice in moments of insight. And we do naturally. You know, even if what we have seen may have had, you know, a lot of dukkha involved with it, but we saw it in a way where it was, we were released from the personal identification with it. And it's a huge lightening of the heart. So in working with mudita, looking to the qualities of joy and happiness, how we experience them in our lives and how we can call them forth, how we can turn our minds towards these qualities. But also in working with mudita, there is the mind states that Uh, really are like the opposite of mudita. And when we habitually fall into them, we find it very, very difficult to rejoice in the happiness of others. These are the, excuse me, mind states of envy, jealousy, comparing mind. Uh, These are, you know, very negative states of mind. And... uh, very painful to experience. Now, when we look at moments of jealousy, uh, maybe we've heard of somebody else's good fortune, and, you know, we just want it for ourselves. We want whatever they have for ourselves. It's a very restricted state of mind. It's very alienating. And it leads to further painful states of mind, anger, resentment, frustration. We come spiraling down with it. When we're envious, uh, really coveting what somebody else has, no possibility to open to their happiness, their well-being. We find that when jealousy, envy are present, that we tend to act very irrationally. And, you know, we get caught up in wanting what they have, and, you know, it's just an idea that we think we need it, that, or that even that we don't have what they have. Our life might be full of it, but we're just caught in this mind state.
the comparing mind, very painful. On retreat, you know, there might be somebody, we tend to notice our fellow yogis, and we might notice if they're having a bad day, if they're having a good day. And so maybe one day someone is sitting there very, very radiant. If we fall into comparing mind, the first thought might be they're faking it. You know? And then we think, oh, they've got something that I don't have. I'll never have it. And it becomes painful. No, it could be that we look at somebody and they're absolutely radiant. It could inspire us. Or it could help us to recognize something within our own experience. But we cut off that possibility when we start falling into the comparing mind. One thing that I found very interesting in my own experience was when I would fall into these uh, habits of jealousy, envy, comparing mind on hearing about somebody else's good fortune. Uh, And that was that in those moments to simply shift the focus from my own pain and suffering, contraction of heart, to just letting the mind light upon the other person's happiness. And that's where we can really come to know how contagious happiness can be. That in doing that, it became very easy to drop the jealousy. You know, it was just a state, a habituated pattern that I had that I often fell into. But in switching the focus, it was very easy to be happy for another. And it's said to be that the proximate cause of mudita is to see the happiness of another. So we just have to turn our minds there. This really helps us to get in touch with a spirit of benevolence, spirit of generosity. And it takes us out of a self-referential framework. The near enemy of mudita is that of exuberance. It's where we get carried away or disconnected through the joy. It's actually a very painful state, which I learned through my own practice when I was doing mudita. And, you know, this was uh, after coming, after a period of doing compassion practice and then turning to mudita, just felt so joyful and seemed so easy to delight in the happiness of others. But after a day of just extreme uh, joyfulness, it was very tiring. It wasn't sustaining. And that was because I had become exuberant with it, lost connection. And um, 
swept away by the joy. So mudita requires us to experience the joy with our feet firmly placed upon the earth, to be able to stay connected. A woman named Eileen Sirawadana, who is a professor of Buddhist studies in Sri Lanka, says, Mudita is a joy and appreciation flowing quietly out of the core of one's heart towards other others, like water from a spring flowing outwards from the bowels of the earth. So remembering it's not a really raucous, exuberant energy, but a quiet, simple delight. When we actually are able to connect with the happiness of another, another person, it has a resultant effect that we experience a sense of well-being, that there is a benefit to ourselves that happens through this. And there is also a benefit that can be quite tangible to the other person, where in our being able to delight in their happiness, in that moment they can feel supported and appreciated. It seems somewhat ironical that we can have such a um, sense of limited happiness and keep ourselves held back from really experiencing happiness to the actual experience that when we touch into it, it, uh, when we experience the joy of another, it actually brings more joy into the world. It multiplies the joy. It's quite easy to see the way that the mudita works when being with a small child. And if a small child is offering you a gift, and as you receive that gift, maybe a smile of delight comes to your face. And the child, in seeing that delight, becomes radiant. They thrive on the joy that another experiences. One of my teachers, Hogan Daido Yamahata, uh, a Japanese Zen monk, is to me a person who really embodies this quality of mudita. He embodies it through a lightness of being, uh, his ability to experience joy and happiness through others' happiness, Um, he has a very generous heart. I was organizing a retreat for him one year, and I went to the airport to pick him up. When he got off the plane and collected his baggage, he's this very little tiny uh, monk, he collected two very large suitcases. 
And in seeing this, I immediately had a small judgment. <laughs> but what does a monk need two suitcases for? <laughs> but what I discovered in being with him was that his suitcases were filled with gifts. And during the course of that time he was in the, the town I was living in, he would, you know, as people came to visit, he would give them gifts. And uh, then there came a point towards the end of that time where he had to go to a shop to replenish his bags so that when he went on to the next place that he could uh, have gifts for them. But the other part that I noticed was that, you know, in people coming and sharing with him, if they in some way were happy, he just became so happy for them. It was so beautiful. And one day I went to see him and I had just received some news that made me very happy. And so I went and I shared this with him. And then he reached out and he clutched my hands and he started jumping up and down. And there we were, standing in the middle of the room, jumping up and down. And, you know, it was just that light, joyous moment. And what I also noticed with him was that he could take total joy, delight, in one moment. But he didn't fall into collusion with that. He didn't fall into a sentimental view with that. In the next moment, he could whack me with the Zen stick. You know, so it's got to be connected. And yet, at the same time, it can be boundless. I'd like to share a teaching from the 17th Karmapa. Uh, young as he may be, he has a lot of wisdom. (laughs) And I think that this expresses quite a beautiful focus for rejoicing that is very wholesome. And just to say a little bit about, uh, before I go into his teaching, uh, since it's coming to mind, that when we're rejoicing in the happiness of others, it can be in little small instances of joy that another person may experience in their life. Uh, but it's important that it be with that which is wholesome. So it's not in delighting if somebody is happy about some form of happiness that actually created more suffering in the world. So um, it 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 needs to have within it this wholesome attribute. So this is what he uh, talks about in rejoicing. There are two ways of looking at rejoicing. Rejoicing in the virtue, functioning as a cause, and rejoicing in virtue as a result. We can delight in the virtuous actions that someone does, knowing that at some point in the future, they will benefit from these actions. Or we can rejoice when these actions come to fruition. He also goes on to say, What are the benefits of expressing this sympathetic joy? In terms of others' virtuous actions and their results, which could even be liberation, if we sincerely rejoice in their achievement, we will receive a result that is even greater 
than what is attained by the person who actually performed the activity. If we rejoice in the fruition of our own activity, the result would become immeasurable. I found this very interesting, that if we rejoice in someone else's wholesome deeds, that there is a great benefit to ourselves. doesn't mean we do it to get more benefit, but that through the wisdom factor being present, uh, that we can receive the blessings of others. Good fortune in their being able to perform virtuous deeds. When a fellow yogi offers dana for a meal, it's a time when we can rejoice for them in knowing that because of their actions, they will bear wholesome fruits. It will come back to them. We can rejoice for them in their virtue. In that moment, we can also rejoice in our own wholesome actions that are coming to fruition. We are, in that moment, receiving nourishment that will help to sustain our practice. It's a result of virtuous deeds that we have done in the past. The practice of mudita is, uh, when it's classically taught, one begins with someone whom we know is experiencing good fortune. You know, someone that we call to mind and immediately feel happy for the uh, good conditions they may be living in, the good fortune they may have, uh, their well-being they may be experiencing, and we wish that for them that that may be never-ending, that, that the good fortune may continue. And we might find that it's easy for people we love and care for, but becomes more challenging for those whom we may not know or those who are the difficult people in our lives. But if we can actually learn to rejoice in the happiness of even the people who are difficult for us. It is a way that um, we see them in a more kind-hearted way. And it's also a way that we can really begin to see that they do more than the harmful actions that we often put them down for. I found in living at IMS, which I've lived here now for, uh, I think it's 10 years this summer. It's either 10 or 11, I'm not sure. But in living here, I believe that the staff, the teachers here, are really working to elevate the status of mudita in the world. 
that it is a practice that is very prevalent in the IMS community, in that by living together as a community, we find many ways of delighting in the happiness or good fortune of another. I want to share one very simple example of this, but it's a way of seeing how it turns the mind from the negative mind states into a wholesome mind state. And so this happened one day at lunch, and the lunch that day was tempeh. And tempeh is not a food that everyone appreciates. And on this particular day, there, I think there was about eight of us sitting around the table. And seven of the people sitting there were not experiencing great appreciation. And were expressing somewhat of their disappointment that tempeh was being served. And then one person piped up and said, I love tempeh. And suddenly in the room, cheers broke out that we all, right, I don't know, it was a spontaneous um, stepping into mudita, that we all started rejoicing in their happiness, being happy for them. Took us right out of our own, well, obviously you can see where I fell, <laughs> our, our mind states of negativity into a wholesome mind state. I think the practice of mudita is especially helpful if we work with people who are in a lot of pain. That if we're working with someone whom, you know, day after day it seems hard, and then they experience a moment of joy, it's important that we can celebrate these moments with them that we can appreciate that they have had a ray of sunshine in their life. We find with mudita that one of the benefits of it is that it helps to eliminate boredom. And this is because through mudita, we learn to appreciate the little joys in life. We learn to celebrate these joys. We learn to be attentive to them. When we are bored, we are not connecting with our experience. And so with mudita, in order to appreciate these little joys, we have to be close to our experience. I'd like to share another teaching from Nyanaponikatera, whom, uh, just to say, if you've never read the chapter in his book, uh, The Vision of Dhamma, uh, there's a chapter on the Brahma-viharas, and he speaks very eloquently about all of the Brahma-viharas. And so I really encourage you at some point in your life to read it. So I'd just like to share another uh, piece that he says of Mudita. Let us teach real joy to others. Many have unlearned it. 
in life through a life full of woe. Actually, I think a piece is missing in here, so we'll have to skip this quote. Um, But it is about helping others to recognize this quality of joy. And really, in doing so, bringing joy into the world. Helping it to be recognized. Helping this joy to take our lives to a whole new level so that we can find supreme happiness. So in coming in contact with mudita, we first set the the basis for learning to open to joy through inviting joy into our own lives, noticing joy when it's present, noticing the blessings of our life, opening to gratitude, cultivating generosity, all ways of coming in contact with joy. And then finding that we can actually rejoice in the happiness of others, helping joy to multiply in the world. And we find that when our joy is completely unselfish, it is contagious, it does multiply, it's infectious. Remembering somebody in your life who you met where just in being with them, you couldn't help but be happy. And this is the quality of joy that we can bring into the world. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings have happiness and success that is never-ending.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.